HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef and sommelier duo, Austin Johnson and Dustin Wilson. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Austin and Dustin about collaboration, their new farm-to-table restaurant, One White Street, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're covering some of Julia's favorite topics today. A chef-driven restaurant, selecting great wine, and one that we haven't explored as much. The power of a great collaboration. While Julia generally took center stage, the creation of the book that made her famous, of course we're talking about mastering the art of French cooking, was very much a collaboration. It started as a trio with Louisette Bertol and Simone Back and Julia, and then Simka and Julia went the distance, even writing volume two together. And then Julia worked closely with producers Russ Marash and Ruth Lockwood to make the French Chef TV series at WGBH. And that, of course, included great support from Julia's husband, Paul. And then later in Julia's career, she collaborated with producer-director Jeff Drummond and chef Jacques Pepin, in the television shows, which also made her Cambridge Home Kitchen famous. Those collaborations all had a unified purpose, to elevate what we were cooking and eating at home and when we dined out. Julia offered clear and sound advice when she said, we must never lose sight of a beautifully conceived meal. Two people who also believe in the power of collaboration 
to make that beautifully conceived meal is chef and sommelier duo Austin Johnson and Dustin Wilson. They have turned a Tribeca townhouse, formerly the location of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Newtopian embassy, into a modern farm-to-table restaurant. One White Street is directly connected to its own dedicated Hudson River Valley farm. An Omaha native, Austin started cooking in his hometown at 14, and by 20 had landed at Canlis in Seattle with its then-top chef, Jason Frenet. Diving literally deeper, he spent six months cooking aboard an Alaskan salmon commercial fishing vessel. By 2010, Austin was working in New York City for chef Daniel Hum, the Michelin three-star and once best restaurant in the world, 11 Madison Park. After stages at Noma in Copenhagen and Oudsloos in the Netherlands, Austin re-teamed with Hum in New York to open the Nomad restaurant. Four years later, he moved to Paris, becoming executive chef at Frenchie, where he earned a Michelin star while running the group's three restaurants. Dustin, an entrepreneur and master sommelier, co-founded Verve Wine in 2016, an online wine retailer with physical locations in New York City, San Francisco, and Chicago. With more than 20 years of experience in hospitality, he's been a sommelier at some of America's best restaurants, from Frasca's Food and Wine in Boulder to the Little Nell in Aspen and RN74 in San Francisco. Also an 11 Madison Park alum, having served as wine director for several years, you may recognize his voice if you're a fan of the acclaimed wine documentary Psalm and its sequels in which he's been profiled. Austin and Dustin join us today to talk about their latest collaboration, One White Street, and how they're marrying the city to the countryside and the food to the wine. Welcome to the podcast, Austin and Dustin. Thanks a lot. So, Austin, maybe we could start, and Dustin, you can chime in. How did you guys end up joining forces, and and what is the vision you've created for for One White Street? Sure. You know, I hate to deflect the first question, but Dustin tells this story so much better than I do. I'm going to let him tackle the how we met <laughs> kind of story. because um, I, I, I Sure. Feel like he so just tells it better Austin and I, I met, do. you know, it's funny. We both worked some of the same Go restaurants. Justin. You know, I was at EMP. He was at EMP. Um, I was part of the Nomad opening as, as you know, kind of in, very involved in the wine program in the beginning and helping to train and things like that. But but he and I actually never really overlapped. Um so we know a lot of the same people and run in the same circles, but never work together um, at either of those restaurants. But, you know, being a wine guy, you know, I do a lot of wine traveling. Um, and I was with a good buddy of mine, Thomas Pastorchak, who is the or former wine director of the Nomad Hotels. And uh, we were in France, and I think we were visiting the Rhone Valley at that time. And this was, I think, maybe like early or mid to 2018, I think, something like that. And um, we were heading out the next day, flying back to, to New York. And um, so we were heading out of the Rhone and came up to Paris. And we had one night in Paris to hang out um, before we flew out early the next morning. Um, and, you know, of course, we're looking for somewhere fun to eat. And, um, and Thomas recommended that we try to, try to go to Frenchie. And I, of course, had heard of this restaurant and had actually taken care of some of the team of Frenchie at, at EMP during my tenure there. And... Um, always wanted to go, but heard it was very difficult to get into. And, um, luckily Thomas knew Austin who happened to be there at the time. Um, cause those two did work together. 
<laughs> so it was as simple as uh, Thomas just shooting a text over to Austin saying, hey, I'm with my buddy Dustin. Can we swing by? Um, and he, of course, Austin being the hospitality guy that he is, set us up really nicely over in the wine bar. Um, you know, Frenchie, they've got the, kind of the restaurant on one side of the little street there. They've got a wine bar on the other side of the street. So we, we went to the wine bar and, and sat there and Austin uh, came out and said hello. And then he cooked for us and hung out a little bit. I think we, you know, shared some wine, maybe had a beer or something like that. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And um, I remember watching him do his thing. And it was really cool to see a chef um, be able to kind of bob and weave in the way that he was. You know, he was over in the wine bar kitchen. Then he was over in the restaurant kitchen. He's preparing courses. He's overseeing his team. He's meandering through the dining room and chatting with guests and hanging out with us. And I was like, wow, this guy can just do it all. Um, and I just remember being really, really impressed and um, just had a great time. And uh, came back to, to New York and <clears throat> I think we, we ended up just kind of staying in contact after that. Um, for, for several months. And um, I can't remember exactly what kicked it off, but I just remember that meal and I remembered Austin and I'm like, man, if I was ever going to open a restaurant again, I'd love to do something with that guy. <laughs> and um, so I just reached out and we were chatting. And I was like, you know, I was asked, Hey, what are you, what are you, what are your plans? And, um, he did mention that eventually he would love to get back to New York at some point in time. He'd love to do his own restaurant. Um, so I kind of threw it out there. I was like, hey, well, you know, if, if, if I could help make this happen, uh, would you be interested in doing something together? He said, absolutely. So that's, that's kind of what kicked it off. Um, and luckily, you know, I was able to uh, round up some, some folks to kind of believe in this little vision that we had and um, helped us find a space. And, and here we are. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the path. It's, it's been a long one. <laughs> it was three years ago at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun getting this going. Austin, do you want to pick up what the vision is part? Or, or do you want to deflect that back to Dustin? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 sure. Uh, well, 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 well said, Dustin. I, I always appreciate that. But, um, you know, what, what Frenchie was and, and what I loved about Frenchie and what what New Yorkers loved about Frenchie, um, because it was such a destination restaurant, not just for Parisians, but also tourists, um, was that there, you, you know, there was, there was several concepts going on. There was, there was, there was a really kind of fine dining tasting menu restaurant on one side of the street that was really, really small and intimate. It was only 24 seat restaurant with the kitchen, probably the size of a New York city closet. Um, <clears throat> And across the street was this like really fun, hip, uh, loud, delicious wine bar that, you know, had a queue of 30 people outside every night before we opened and, and was just as much of a destination restaurant as that tasting menu was. So, you know, in, in terms of, of being in charge and, and kind of running this, this incredible street and this incredible group, um, you know, I was, I was really challenged creatively to to create what I thought was Michelin starred food, um, you know, for half of my day. And, and then the other half was, was kind of a little bit more, um, kind of wine bar, a little more casual style food, things meant a, a little bit more for sharing or, or, you know, small plates that just come as they're ready. So it, it really was running two restaurants with two concepts. And, 
And after doing that for several years, I, I, I just kind of fell in love with it. You know, I was, I was, I was challenged, as I said, creatively and, and the staff was different. The service was different. The equipment was different, the timing, the ingredients. And, you know, when it came time to kind of start to think about my own space and my own restaurant and how I really wanted to, uh, live my career, um, in this city, it, it, it was kind of, it, it was just obvious to me that I wanted to have this, this kind of dual concept. I mean, it's just barely a dual concept. It's, it's really just a, a great restaurant with a couple different ways of eating. But, um, so what we have here is, 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 is a, is a four story townhouse. And, you know, as I mentioned in Paris, Frenchie was, was across the street. You know, the, the wine bar was across the street and Frenchie to go was down the street and the produce shop was again, across the street. And, and in New York, it's a little bit tougher to do that. So what we've done is, is taken kind of that Frenchie concept and, 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 and done it vertically. So downstairs on the ground floor, we have a really small, fun wine bar with, with kind of a very similar concept where it's a little more casual and a little bit more sharing focused and a little bit smaller plates. And it's 20, uh, 28 seats plus an outdoor terrace. And then upstairs on the second and third floor, we have, we have a, a, a tasting menu experience. So, you know, it's, it's not one that I want to last for four or five hours. It's, it's a, it's a two hour, six course, fun, delicious, farm driven, seasonal, thoughtful, tasting menu. And, um, so, so, you know, the vision is, 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 is kind of, um, a carbon copy of, of, of what I enjoyed so much about Paris in, in running those restaurants and in running that group. So, um, I, I think that answers a bit of the question. No, very well. And since we have French in mind from that conversation, is it, is it French style food or how would you describe the, the style of the food that you're going to sure, offer? Yeah. You know, it's a question I'm asked all the time and, and, you know, my roots, my, my, I am technically trained French, you know, um, working with Daniel Hume and Jason Franey and, in, in, in some beautiful four seasons properties. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, French trained cook, um, culinarian chef. Um, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, you can't take your foundation and your French techniques and, and, and apply it to flavors and, and, um, ingredients that are inspired from around the world. So, you know, I think we can get into the history of this building a little bit a little bit later, but I, but um, the cuisine here is is a true sense of of farm to townhouse, um, given given our link to the farm in upstate New York, and I also call it Newtopian cuisine, which which is cuisine that is that is not met with any with any boundaries or any borders. It's it's again French technical, but globally inspired um, with New York State. Um, ingredients in in new york state seasons and yeah maybe let's we'll just take this moment to talk about the the farm part of the story and like was sure. that part of the original discussion you and dustin had or was that something that happened in in some other it, form or fashion you know, it, i'll tell you working in paris made me the luckiest cook in the world because it's not every day a, a, 
a, a cook from Nebraska gets the opportunity to spend a, a serious chapter of their life in Paris and um, also at a, at a high level in Paris. The, the, the products, the farmers, the ingredients, the spices, the, 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 the seafood, everything in France is just better than, than what I saw growing up cooking throughout the United States. And, and, and that's not a knock on the United States. There's amazing products all over. I mean, I was pulling the freshest fish out of the ocean for, for another chapter of my life. But, but your kind of day-to-day onions, carrots, sunchokes, tomatoes, it's just better in France. And coming back to New York, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to continue working with what, what I thought was, was the best products. And I felt like the only way to truly do that was, was to create a farm with, you know, with, with, with really serious farming um, techniques, um, things that surpass organic standards, um, really bringing this kind of this, this French inspired farm idea back to the Hudson Valley. And, you know, I just simply didn't want to go to the Union Square Farmer's Market for five days a week and battle for the same sun chokes that every other chef is battling for. I'd rather just grow my own, grow a unique variety and do it, do it for this restaurant. Um, so, um, yeah, the farm is, is, was, was really a part of the plan from, from the beginning. Okay. And so it's a little like the Stone Barnes model, except for the fact that Dan Barber's done that sort of outside of New York City, and this is a way to kind of bring it direct to a, a downtown restaurant. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if I, I would love to have a, a restaurant uh, 30 meters from the farm. I think that's brilliant. I think Stone Barns is, is brilliant. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been a huge inspiration for us. And, you know, a, a really fun fact about our farm is – you know, we consulted with a gentleman by the name of Elliot Coleman, who is who's really kind of the Thomas Keller of, or or even Julia Child of of what is small agriculture. What is what is Stone Barns? And Elliot Coleman um, actually created Stone Barns. He created the layout and and really consulted on that entire farm property. And he also did the same for us in upstate New York at Rigger Hill Farm. So. You know, we consulted w- with the best, and and um, you know, Stone Barns is is very much an inspiration to to what we're doing. So now, have you been able to pull French quality ingredients out of that Hudson Valley soil yet, or sort absolutely. of where are you in the? No, the- totally. Our first season was an absolute surprise. You know, we we weren't sure. You know, our farmers and our our really talented farm farm team was 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 curious about the soil we weren't sure um but an absolutely smashing first year with with great yields great flavor um incredible and you know we take cover cropping on the farm extremely serious we're, we're cover cropping 50 percent of our soil 100 percent of the time so you know where we grew tomatoes last year is now a cover crop of 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 of, um, you know, daikon and buckwheat and really things that are amazing for our soil. And then we moved all our tomatoes this year onto what was cover crop last year. So we're, 
we're always giving back to the soil and um, and it's just going to continue to uh, elevate um, our, our produce. Do you think the cover crop will end up on the menu in some form or fashion or do you need to till it all back in? No, it's so funny, you know, because Danny Morales, my, my, the, the farm manager, he's his cover crop this year was was daikon. Um, which produces incredibly gorgeous flowers. Uh, last year was a lot of buckwheat, which is also beautiful. Um, so a lot of stuff that he's used to just kind of trampling down and tarping over and, 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 and tilling back into the soil. When I go down there with my chef team, we're like, whoa, 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 let's pick all these flowers first, or you know, let's do something um, with all this this beautiful stuff. So uh, it's it's incredible what I get to learn from him and, and vice versa. Dustin, want to come back to you. So how does your expertise as a smelly in the wine business then kind of complete the, the picture of um, uh, Austin's cooking and the farm? Tell us about what you have. In mind. Yeah, I think, um, you know, great food is kind of the foundation. And we really love you know adding a, a really solid beverage component onto that. Um, I think... You know, just being on the wine side of things for so long, it's um, you can always tell when you walk into a restaurant as a, as a wine professional, and you can kind of see, understand a very thoughtful list versus something that's just been kind of thrown together. And um, for me, you know, as a as a dining room person, as a wine person, um, that portion of the experience always has elevated, you know, in my eyes, a, a, a restaurant and made it more complete. So, you know, we. Um, we've always kind of had beverage in mind, uh, when we started this, this restaurant and <clears throat> luckily, uh, Austin with his experience at, you know, many of the places that he worked, but particularly Frenchie, um, which was also very wine focused. Um, he's used to cooking with, with wine in mind. So I think what's, what's great about his type of cuisine is a lot of it is very, very, very wine friendly. Um, so there's like a really beautiful marriage of, um, of the cuisine and the, and the wines that we'll have. Um, we've brought on, um, who I think is a, is a really talented individual, a woman named Audrey Frick to be our wine director here. Um, she is kind of cut from the same cloth as myself. She spent a lot of time with Bobby Stuckey out in, uh, in Colorado, uh, at both his flagship restaurant, Frosca in Boulder, as well as his, um, his newer restaurant in Denver called Tavernetta. Um, she's a master sommelier candidate. She also writes for Jeb Dunnick magazine. Um, she's a pro super talented, really excited to have her. And, you know, she, she also can really align with kind of the vision for what we want to do with beverage, uh, at this restaurant. So, um, you know, we're excited to, it, it'll be a smallish program. Uh, this is a small, small building with, um, that's just not a lot of space. Uh, but it's going to be very thoughtful uh, and very focused on the food. So I think what we're planning to do is is have a lot of things that um, sort of rotate through uh, through the course of the year. Um, a lot of core items, of course, but then um, a lot of wines too that will be brought in um, depending on the time of the year and, and really focused on on the ingredients and the uh, the seasonality of the food that we're getting from the farm. So kind of taking that element of the food component. Um, and the, and the ingredients from the farm and matching that with what kind of wines get placed onto the list and are poured by the glass and with pairings and things like that. So um, I don't want to use the word seasonal necessarily for wine because I don't 
believe that's a, a thing, but in this case, the, the wine is going to be very focused on, um, on the type of food that we are serving and the ingredients that will be on the plate. So in that case, it kind of is. And will you have any wines from Newtopia? <laughs> well, Newtopia is, is everywhere. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be, so it's not focused on either necessarily exclusively French wines or new world wines. It, it's going to be, what can people expect? Yeah, the, the program will cover, um, it'll be a global program, um, wines from, from all over. Uh, the, let's say the core focus of the program is going to be a, that, that kind of, um, focus on the ingredients and the menu, um, and the food, um, be, you know, wines that are made, um, in a, uh, kind of a minimalist style. Um, and that what we mean by that is basically just a lack of manipulation, um, wines that are authentic to their sense of place that are, um, kind of hands off in the process. Um, but very well-made and very clean. And it'll be a mix of kind of classic things as well as more contemporary types of wines. Um, and there's also going to be a heavy focus on kind of the diversity of um, not only the places, but the people behind the wines as well. Um, kind of giving representation to um, people from all different types of backgrounds um, and showcasing a lot of wines uh, from that point of view as well. Got it. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we'll go a bit more big picture talking with Dustin and Austin about our post-pandemic dining future from their perspective. Stay with us. HRN and Inside Julia's Kitchen run on listener support. If you enjoy our show, the best way to support it is to become a member of HRN. Set up a monthly recurring donation of any amount, $1, $5, $10, as much as you can afford, and select Inside Julia's Kitchen in the designation drop-down menu. You can count on me, Todd Shulkin, each week to make Inside Julia's Kitchen, so let's work together to keep it going. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Austin Johnson and sommelier Dustin Wilson about their soon-to-open farm-to-table collaboration, One White Street, in New York City's Tribeca. So it's a little bit in fits and starts. It seemed like one day we're hopefully moving into a post-pandemic, if not COVID-free world. The next day, maybe we're two steps back, but we're I think at least making some progress. So I was curious what you guys think about how much the pandemic has impacted hospitality in terms of, is it forever changed or are we kind of gradually creeping back to when you first sat down and started planning for one white street? I'll, uh, I can take lead on this one. Um, kind of a loaded question. I have a lot of opinions about this, but I would say there are things that we're doing and then there's things that kind of have my opinions about the industry overall. Um, I think, I think the pandemic was obviously very, very hard for, um, for the industry as a whole. Um, and I think it, it taught all of us a lot of lessons. I think the good things that are going to come out of this will be, um, a renewed focus on, um, kind of the, 
the business aspects of running restaurants um, and making sure that, you know, you're, you're putting your best practices in place um, when running these places. I think the restaurants that I saw that were the most vulnerable um, were ones that, that didn't necessarily pay too much attention to bottom line. It was, uh, you know, more for fun than for anything else. And I saw a lot of them close. Um, I think, you know, generally speaking, there needs to be a, a good focus on just good business practices. Um, God forbid something else happens again down the line. Um, we want to be as, as protected as we can um, in the case that something would happen. So, and I think, you know, when everything was shut down and limited capacity and things like that, it really put a focus on, um, you know, costs and how you run your, your, your business. Um, and the people that were able to kind of pivot and do that well are the ones that survived and, um, and made it through and are, are, you know, thriving now that things are starting to come back. Um, I think the other thing that um, is, is change for the positive, or at least is heading in that direction is, um, a renewed focus on teams and employees and staff and um, both how people are compensated as well as taken care of in the restaurant. And um, it was, it was very clear kind of who, who took care of their teams and who didn't through the pandemic. Um, and I think that everybody still kind of feels that. So I think for us in particular, we're, we're trying to do everything we can to set up our restaurant one to be um you know, successful from a business standpoint, but then also to take really good care of our, our people. Um, because that at the end of the day is, is one of the most important things. Um, and then I think the other thing that I've noticed that Austin and I talk a lot about, um, that we want this restaurant to be is a real focus on our neighborhood, our immediate neighborhood. I think given the scope of this project and given our backgrounds and, you know, what we're doing here, I think, I think it's going to draw some attention, which is, which is a great thing, but, um, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. We want to make sure that the first priority for us is, um, really taking care of our neighbors, um, and being a good, good neighbor to this area and our community and, um, making sure that we're, you know, not shooting for the stars necessarily so much that we forget about the folks right around the corner from us. So we want to make sure that that's our top priority. And I think something else I saw during the pandemic was um, the restaurants that did that well, um, you know, stayed busy, at least busy enough and had a loyal following because um, if you were a restaurant that was more destination or relied on a lot of tourism, the tourism was gone for a long time. Um, So I think, you know, mm-hmm. taking care of your neighbors and that renewed sense of being part of a community, I think is a really important lesson for us and one that we take very seriously here and, uh, you know, something we'll, we'll continue to focus on. Yeah, no, I think community is, is, a, is a big topic and, and became a, a, something that people, is not everyone and certainly not every restaurateur, but wasn't front and center in the conversation and I think is right up there with with equity in the in the kitchen and the dining room. Austin, did you want to weigh in? I was kind of curious if you thought, because you mentioned your the plan for the upper floors to offer tasting menus, but do you think the tasting menu culture and the fine dining culture that existed pre-pandemic will be forever changed or, or what's your what's your view? Yeah, it's you know it's a great question. <clears throat> I don't think so. You know, I think uh 
I think what we're trying to do here is is actually not in the same bubble as ultra fine dining culture. You know, um, there's there's nothing I love more in life than a than a beautiful three star Michelin four hour meal. But that's not necessarily um, how I want how I want to cook or what I want to offer our guests. Um, I think, again, it kind of goes back to this neighborhood approach. And um, these second and third floors are not necessarily a special occasion restaurant. It's, it's, it's also a neighborhood restaurant that could be eaten at once a week, twice a month, once a month. Um, it's, 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 um, it's, it's approachable. So, um, but I also think that the four-hour tasting menu will also survive and and, and thrive um, the way it has over the last hundreds of years. So I, that's that's for New York City. You know, I see New York City. I see people out and about. I see um, tasting menus full. I see reservations fully booked. It's hard to get into places. New York's on fire. And I think that... Uh, um, I think that I think that things have changed, but not not forever. Yeah, no, I I take your point. And what I think what you're both saying is like for you guys, the bigger change is kind of what's happening behind the scenes and the approach to operating restaurants and the role that they play. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think you're also reflecting as people stop talking about now, but we're talking about in the height of the pandemic is like now I get where the roaring 20s came from before it was from deprivation. People actually want to go out and really have a good time and that there's there's um for better for worse demand for that yeah from the, from the guest standpoint you know <clears throat> people are tired of staying home they're ready to go back out they want to feel a sense of normalcy again they want to go see their friends and get together and eat and drink and have a great time and you know spend their money on the things that they weren't able to spend their money on for the last 15 months or however long it's been um so i think from from that standpoint you know things are going to roar back i think very quickly if they haven't i mean New York, it feels like things are already back to normal in that regard. Um, reservations are booked everywhere. Um, I think for me, you, you articulated it really well. The, it's kind of more of the behind the scenes stuff, um, how, how we operate and the way we think about um, the experience and what we're offering. And um, those are the kind of the things that I think have, have changed. Less so, you know, I don't, I don't think fine dining is going away. I don't think tasting menus are going away. I don't think... I think like any of that's going to go away. People want what they want and they, they love it. Um, but I think the, the way we operate and the way we prioritize things, um, you know, I think has to change. And, and I'll, I'll say it for you guys. Like, I think some people are like a little horrified about this four hour tasting menu. Is it really appropriate anymore? But, but I think I can see it in just listening to you that what, the best thing about a four-hour tasting menu, which is obviously not your your goal at, at One White Street, but is it's an experience and it's very memorable. And if it's done at the highest level, so it isn't about stuffing your face or gluttony or anything like that. The, the, certainly the ones that, that I've had and I was really lucky to eat at El Bulli and other places like that is it does it stays with you and you probably only do it once maybe you do it twice in your life but but it it's the experience and i think that's definitely as we look at consumption patterns people are looking for experiences 
And I think, Austin, what you were reflecting is you want to offer that experience, but at a level where people live in Tribeca could do it more frequently. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, because we touched on this a little bit, and I'm sure you're both aware of it. There's certainly been some scrutiny, if not scandal, about restaurants presenting themselves as offering local food or farm to table when it really wasn't. And, you know, I think that certainly hurt the movement and has you know, kind of made people, and, and also there's other people who are less scrupulous too, who've kind of used farm to table as, as a gimmick rather than actually anything real behind it. So from a dining point of view, how, how, how do you want consumers to think about it or look at it? Is, is it something that we should continue to value as we're, we're dining out or is it not something really that is, should be a marketing label? The vegetables I'm going to serve here quite frankly, just come from the farm. You know, it's, it's, it's a working, living, breathing, operating business up there. And um, does that mean 100% of our vegetables on this menu will come from Rigger Hill Farm? Absolutely not. And I don't ever want to be, um, <clears throat> I don't ever really want to say that it is. That's, that's not um, some language that I would like to um, be attached to. Uh, um, we're going to do our absolute best to use our four seasons and our technology and our education on the farm to get as much righteous food onto the plate as we can here for the the life of the restaurant. Um, and, you know, there has been a lot of heat. Uh, and, I've, and I've worked at places that, you know, um, may say farm to table, but, but, but I will say in New York, at the level I've been exposed to, and even in Se- Seattle, at the at, at the level I was exposed to, these chefs and these in these in these um, in sous chefs and the culinary teams take farm to table like it's 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 more of a lifestyle than 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 a decision. You know, I, c- I can go down to the Union Square Farmers Market every day that it's open and see my colleagues and see my friends and see my chefs doing the best that they can possibly do to stay local, to support local, to get as much, again, righteous, organic produce as they can onto their plates. And, it, and, and the reason they do it, it, it tastes better, you know? So I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of kind of, you know, BS in New York with, with the farm to table. Um, I see chefs at the market's every week um, shopping for their restaurants with massive crates and, and getting into taxis and getting the best strawberries at 7.30 in the morning. And, and um, the community that, I, that, I'm ex- that I'm exposed to and, and have been in this city um, is as farm to table as New York City allows. And Dustin, I was struck by when I was trying to pin you down to to what wines are going to be on your your wine list. I was struck by what I felt like you were describing, but I'm putting words in your mouth, so I'll I'll let you answer. Is that you're kind of looking for a similar vibe out of the wines you're going to carry? That they come, whether they come from an organic wine producer or not, but they come from wine producers who have a similar aesthetic to what you're trying to achieve at one white street and with what you're doing at Rigger Hill farm is that, am I correct in, in that perspective? And then I was curious of also through Verve wine, whether there's some, um, wines you might recommend that you're excited about that have come through, um, that you have this summer. 
or for summer drinking. There's no such thing as a summer wine, of course. We we prefer to work with smaller producers that really care about their their lands um, and kind of farm appropriately. And um, and then in the winery, you know, really um, take care to allow the wine to become um, what it wants to become in, in a uh, in as much of a hands off process as possible. I'm trying really hard to avoid saying natural because that just has its own connotation. Um, but it's, you know, attention to farming and it's attention to a, um, a non-manipulative way of making wine. Um, and typically we, we try to support smaller kind of more family owned wineries, um, people that care a lot about, um, you know, developing wines that have that sense of place and, um, and are true to kind of the, the flavors and the aromas um, that one might expect from the grapes that they use, um, if that all makes sense. We, we, we tend to stay away from kind of the bigger brands and uh, more mass production type of things. So I guess in, in that sense, you know, it does sort of follow some of the ethos of, mm. of the farm and just the, the care that goes into, um, you know, everything from, you know, how the land itself where the vines are growing is cared for to how those actual plants are cared for to how the, the grapes are, are harvested, um, to, you know, the process start to finish of, of making the wines. Um, so, and then of course, you know, for us, it's also really important that they, they taste really good. So, um, you know, we, take time to make sure that they're the wines are clean and that they're correct and they are delicious and they're a good value for the price. And, um, all of those things, um, are, are really meaningful when we kind of select the wines. That makes sense. And for any, any, uh, recommendations that you've got at Verve wine for uh, drinking right now in the summer, are you all about Rosé or are you thinking differently? What, 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 uh, yeah. Um, you know, this time of year for me, it's, I can kind of drink lots of different types of things. Um, my, my main things, I guess would be, you know, lots of higher acid, uh, crisp, crunchy white wines. Um, a big fan of Chenin Blanc, um, whether it's from the Loire or, or elsewhere. Um, had some really good ones from California, some fun South African wines. Um, so those are great. Um, Riesling, of course, is always good this time of year. Um, anything that's got a lot of nice acidity and brightness to it is just, you know, these hot days is, is really refreshing. Um, and then I also, you know, big fan of rosé too. Um, and, you know, rosé, I feel like it can come from anywhere these days and can be really good. Um, and then for reds, you know, I, I'm a really big fan of the chillable reds. Um, usually lighter, um, brighter acidity, red wines that have low tannin, usually paler in color, um, things like Gamay or Trousseau or, um, you know, stuff along those lines, even certain Grenache types of wines can be really fun that way. Um, give them a little chill and, uh, and serve them on a hot day. And it's, it's really nice. So that's, that's tend to, tends to be what I get into this time of year. Well, now I'm pretty thirsty. So thank you. And uh, we're going to take another break. And, and when we come back, we'll have another Double Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. So speaking of great collaborations, 
Join the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, me, and Julia's great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme, in conversation with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG. We're bringing you an exclusive first look at their new documentary about Julia's life and legacy. Come celebrate Julia's birthday with us from wherever you'll be on August 15th. Make sure you're registered at sbce.events. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Austin, tell us, what's your Julia moment? Sure. You know, I, I, I got into cooking very, very, very early. I, I, I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. I, I grew up in a kind of meat and potatoes family. Cooking wasn't a huge part of my upbringing. You know, my, my, my grandparents weren't making me wash lettuces on a milk crate or anything like that. You know, I, I didn't have kind of your classic intro into cooking, but uh, I did have this, this, this culinary high school instructor. Um, she was, she was in charge of home ec and the cooking classes and, and um, you know, I started cooking professionally in, in a restaurant at the age of 14. So by the time I got to high school, I, I was like, my fettuccine Alfredo game was on fire. And, um, you know, I was, I, I was already in love with cooking. I was watching Iron Chef every single night of the week until four in the morning. Like I was, I was, I was in it. Emeril Lagasse and, and, and of course, Julia Childs. And, and, um, you know, as I kind of started going through high school, uh, I was terrible at math. I was terrible at everything, but cooking. <laughs> and, uh, so I started taking kind of advanced cooking classes, which, you know, certain days of the week allowed me to leave high school early and go into a professional restaurant and, and cook a lunch service. And, um, and, you know, so other days of the week we would stay at school and, and I will never forget, um, you know, Mrs. Biting, who I still give so much of, uh, so much credit to for, for my culinary journey. Um, she would play Julia Child and, uh, I felt like I was maybe the only one in the class truly, truly paying attention. And, um, again, I was just, I was just kind of, I was, I was in it. I was, um, I was addicted to, um, cooking on television. Um, and, and Julia was, a, was a really, really, really huge part of that. And, um, her French French base and, and everything about it just kind of got me addicted to the idea of one day possibly having the opportunity to cook a dish in Paris and um, what I was able to experience and, and achieve and accomplish in Paris. Um, I give a ton of that to to Mrs. Biting. Uh, I give a ton of that to my my mother and father for the work ethic they put in my in my blood and um, I give a lot of it to Iron Chef, <laughs> the old one, uh, and I give a lot of it to Julia. So that's that's kind of my my moment, and uh, it's it's in my blood. So 
I think that's a great one. And I was struck when you were talking about your experience at Frenchie and how it spoiled you for wanting to never give up on the French produce you had to to work with in your career, even when you went back, that I felt like you were infected just like by France, just like Julia was. And that it's wonderful to hear that even as much as France has modernized for better, for worse, that that passion that was instilled in Julia from being there was instilled in you as a, a next generation. So, yeah. Infected I, is a great term. You, yeah. you, you, leave, you leave that, you know, you put your hands on those vegetables for three years. It's, 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 I'm telling you, it's just a different ball game. Yeah. Terroir. So on terroir, yes. let's ask the sommelier. Dustin, what's your Julia moment? Sure. So unlike Austin, um, you know, I, I did not have cooking at top of mind at all when I was growing up. <clears throat> my, uh, my family, we didn't. We, did, we weren't culinarians by any stretch, and um, you know I come from a, a pretty humble upbringing, and we, you know, just <laughs> we were mostly eating microwave things and uh, whatever could you know was was kind of cheap, and um, I, I didn't really have any exposure into um, like great ingredients or, or cuisine or anything like that until much later in life, and um, even as I started working in restaurants. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, I worked at a, a lot of different kind of chain places for a long time. And, and, you know, as I was growing up, that was my thought of what great restaurants were, what good restaurants were. You know, it was like spoiled if I got to go to Olive Garden, you know, one night for dinner. That was like a special night out. Um, so it wasn't until, um, you know, I, I kind of started learning a little bit about wine. Um, and mostly that was for a waiter job that I had in Baltimore for a while, um, that I started kind of getting interested in, in that sort of world. Um, but I would say the moment that everything kind of shifted for me from a culinary standpoint and from an ingredient standpoint and a cuisine and service and just kind of the restaurant world, um, shifted for me is when I moved to Colorado and started, working with, uh, with Bobby and, uh, and Lachlan at Frasca. Um, and that was in 2005. Um, and you know, I'd never worked anywhere like that. It was, um, this beautiful food. It was very focused on the cuisine of Friuli. It was all very handmade. It was using local farms. It was, these guys were ex, um, French laundry folks. Um, you know, the wine list was, full of things that I had never heard of before. You know, I was used, so used to working with big brands and at the Cabernets and Chardonnay and, um, you know, kind of more mass market domestic wines. And this was full of European stuff and a lot of weird Italian things and stuff that I had never heard of or seen before. And um, I simultaneously was kind of scared because I didn't know anything about any of this stuff, um, but equally as inspired and excited and, um, just felt this kind of transformation as if I went from kind of being in the dark for a really long time to all of a sudden getting exposed to what, what kind of a real restaurant and what real ingredients and what real cuisine and real wine and real service and real stuff like this was all about. Um, and I just remember being so inspired and really excited, um, after being there for a block of time. Um, and, and really that's what kind of kicked everything off for me and I never looked back. So I think if I, if I have to, to pinpoint a moment um, that that is kind of inspired by all of this, um, I think I think that's the moment. I was, you know, like I said, we didn't watch 
cooking shows growing up, but I didn't really get much exposure to Julia, um, you know, specifically. Uh, but I think that, you know, she certainly lives through a lot of people in this industry. And I think, um, you know, in some way, shape or form, she touched Bobby and, and Lachlan, which informed some of the things they did at that restaurant and, you know, th- therefore has informed me. So that would have to be my moment. No, and I think that's a great way to interpret a Julia moment because certainly Julia had her own Julia moment, which which you know is famously uh, depicted in Nora Ephron's movie. But that she, like you, although she grew up affluent, she grew up in a family that didn't care what they ate. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't celebrated. They didn't even have, it was before microwaves. So and they had a cook, but it 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 was just sustenance. And she was quite old in her life, probably older than you were when you worked in Colorado, where she married Paul Child and he took her to lunch in Rouen. And she had that same epiphany where everything went from sort of black and white into color around a a meal of great food and great wine and and never look back. So I I think that's a, a, a great moment to share. Thank you. And th- thanks uh, both for joining us. So when when can we look forward to or what's your uh, best uh, prognosis on one uh, one White Street's opening? Hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, we'll, we'll, we should know very soon. Excellent. So fingers crossed it is, is still a summer debut. Yes. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great time. Thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. For the latest on what's happening at One White Street, you can follow them on Instagram and you can keep up with the duo. It's at Austin in NYC on Instagram and at Dustin Wilson MS on both Instagram and Twitter. As always, follow the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The latest on the Santa Barbara culinary experience is on sbc.events and follow at sbculinaryexperience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.